welcome to episode 52 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reform Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Man, it's like we didn't even work that out. We managed to nail it anyways. We crush podcasting now. This is episode 52. I know. We've been doing this for a year. It's hard to believe. It's crazy. So speaking about doing things for a year, what are we talking about today before we get to our our main topic? We got a little follow-up business, right? We did. So last week, um, I had some strong words for people. Did you? And... um, we didn't get any like negative feedback. I was actually a little surprised. We didn't have any hate mail or anything, but we did get a question through our voicemail uh, from Carrie Gephardt, who is the host of Five for Fruit and is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters, uh, along with the Reformed Outlook and Fast God stuff. And um, I will at some point read the transcript because we we apparently a new game we have on the society is we just read the transcripts of Carrie's voicemails. Uh, it was pretty hilarious. But Carrie's question... Um, surrounded the idea that we talked about last week about um, sinful television viewing. And I suppose you could expand that to other things. And his question was basically like, where do you draw the line? How do you determine what is sinful? How do you determine what is a matter of liberty or wisdom? Um, Which I thought it was a great question. It's a really good question. So we're not going to go into any super specifics um, because I think it benefits us and our audience more if um, we talk about it in more general terms. So for me, I've I've actually had this discussion several times last week, so I've had a fair amount of time to sort of refine my thoughts. So my issue with Game of Thrones, more or less, is that in order to make the show that they have made, multiple people necessarily have to sin. And what I mean that by necessarily have to sin is they have to take part in actions which there is no possible way to do without sinning. So in Game of Thrones, we don't have to belabor the point, but it's pretty obvious that when two people take off their clothes and rub their bodies together and pretend to have sex with each other, that that is always, always a sin um, unless the people are married, which would be a strange thing to do. But if they're married, then it wouldn't be a sin. But as far as I know, none of the actors or actresses on Game of Thrones are married to each other. And even if they were, it would be a sin to do that in front of people. So then the question becomes, well, what about other shows, maybe other shows that have some form of nudity or other shows that um, one of the real common questions was blasphemy, people using the Lord's name in vain. Right. And the, the, the principle that I follow is um, if I can conceive of a situation where the actor or actress could take could do what they have done in order to make the, the show – And I suppose you could extend this to any product, really. But if there's a possible way for them to have done that without sinning, then I'm going to give that the benefit of the doubt. And because I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt, I believe it falls within the realm of Christian liberty. So a real good example. Let's pretend that you were making a movie and the movie was of uh, the life of David, right? David, King David from Israel, you know, lots and lots of righteousness, but also lots and lots of sin. And we're at the scene with the Philistines and David and Goliath. Well, Goliath has blasphemous lines, if you were. He says things that are blasphemous. And so the greater purpose of the movie and the greater purpose of the scene is actually to glorify God. But in order to do that, the actor playing Goliath needs to come forward and read certain lines that would be blasphemous if he was to say them and mean them as blasphemy. 
but since he's actually playing a part, then it's not blasphemy because he's not really taking the name of the Lord in vain because the way that he's doing it actually serves the purpose of glorifying the Lord. So I think that's a clear example where something isn't as straightforward as it seems. Now, that doesn't actually fit the majority, I think, of most instances, and so we have to be careful. We have to understand that um, most of the time people are legitimately blaspheming. But for me, the difference is that they aren't necessarily blaspheming. They may or may not be blaspheming. I don't know what's in the heart of the person who's saying it. I don't know what the intention of the actor is or the director. So I don't have a way to know whether or not that's actually sin. So like I said, I give the situation the benefit of the doubt, and uh, I think that puts it in the realm of Christian liberty. That doesn't mean that we still don't have to exercise prudence. Right. So um, Saving Private Ryan, I think, is a movie that is historically accurate. It doesn't glorify violence, but it contains a lot of violence. It doesn't glorify the sin or the um, hatred that is exemplified in some of the scenes, but it's there. Um, but it may still not be a wise thing for you to consume that, that exactly. media. Um, and that goes for music. It goes for art, comic books. I mean, anything you really want to look at is you have to be wise. So that's kind of how I would answer the question and how I would look at it. Um, you know, Carrie brought up the example of Vikings, which we've talked a little bit about in the past. And the last spo- slight spoiler alert, alert, the last scene of Vikings in the, the last season was a fairly explicit sex scene. Um, and I, I'm not sure whether or not I'm going to go back and watch the next season. I suppose it depends on some level, um, whether or not, uh, that carries on, whether or not that is made a a significant thing. Um, but even in that example, we don't know, uh, there was no explicit nudity. You couldn't see whether or not people were actually naked. We don't know. There's a lot of tricks you can do with cameras where it looks like people are touching each other on top of each other and they're not. So even in that situation, because it's not absolutely necessarily sin, there's no way for me to know whether it is or not. So I'm going to exercise wisdom and I'm going to operate within wise boundaries within my Christian liberty and make a decision about that for myself. And I'm going to talk to my wife about it and we'll make a decision. Does that all make sense? Right on. Yeah. I I hope it doesn't sound like I'm just copping out on that. Um, I do think there's a meaningful moral distinction between something produced that is necessarily sin and something that is incidentally or may or may not be sin. There is a, a good distinction, and I'm, I think I'm on the same page with you. I, I just probably come at it from a different angle or a different starting point when we end up in the same place. Probably most people aren't thinking about categorically whether it's necessary or not, but that's helpful because basically my litmus test so has mostly been about this. We're, we're talking mainly, primarily about violence and nudity. So right. when I'm approaching something like that, the thing about nudity is nudity is always and everywhere real when it's depicted. You know, so unless you're getting into some kind of really weird, like holographic stuff and CGI and stuff like that, even even right. that you have to question, of course. But the difference is that violence can be simulated. It can be glorified. But that by itself is, you know, that when you're watching Vikings, for instance, and they're in a battle with each other, they're not actually cutting each other up. Right. Uh, although you don't see a whole lot of that in Vikings, to be honest. But um, nudity, if you're if you're seeing nudity, that is legit. And that for me is where it starts to be the problem. So there's automatically divergence there. So I think that Carrie's question is so good because it cuts to the core and because we laid down the gauntlet and a real challenge on this. And I think he's just rightfully saying we we have to be like super discerning. And the bottom line is all of this stuff is entertainment. So we have to be super careful because I still believe that intent informs the content. 
So you should ask, why is it that the person who's created this particular media is wanting to display these particular things? Is there any kind of purpose in this beyond just entertaining for stimulation purposes? And right. I think you're hard pressed in a lot of those scenes from what I understand and from, from what little, honestly, I've seen from Game of Thrones that there is a lot of redemptive value there in the nudity that's being produced. Like, I'm, I'm not sure how that imports something practically helpful to the storyline besides just right. saying this draws attention, this is stimulating, this gets people riled up. And again, you have to look at the source. Like, it's HBO. Like, they can do this right. stuff. And so in many ways, they do it because they can do it. Exactly. So I think all of that should come into play. And again, we're not saying, like, this is the standard by which you judge the world, your coworkers or your friends who are not Christian. We're saying for the Christian, ought we not to be concerned about this? So Carrie asking that question, I appreciate because it puts the onus back on us where it should be to say how seriously we're going to take filtering what we put into our, our minds and into our hearts, into our thoughts. Yeah. And one other quick thought we mentioned very briefly, <clears throat> excuse me. We mentioned very briefly that the concept of nudity in the setting of a medical kind of situation is a totally different question. And I had some people push back on me on that. And I've had people in the past who've actually said that it's sinful um, for like a man to see a woman doctor and for that woman doctor to see him naked. And respectfully, um, coming across in my devotions uh, the other day, I'm reading in Leviticus and there's a section where it talks about how if you are a leper or you have some sort of skin disease, the equivalent to going seeing a doctor in those days was you would go and see the priest. The priest would diagnose your condition. And then once you had been healed of your condition, either through natural or supernatural means, you would then go again to the priest and you would present yourself and they would examine you again and clear you of that disease. And what caught me, and it was because I was thinking about this, there is no such thing as a woman priest, but there are lots of women Israelites, and there's no prescription for something different for the women Israelites. So we have to assume, based on the instructions given to God's people, that women were going to male priests and were being examined. And leprosy is not a discriminating kind of disease. It shows up where it shows up. So whether it is in a private area or not a private area, um, the, the priest would be seeing that. And probably in most cases, the priest would be evaluating the entire body because skin diseases tend to spread. So those people who want to say that even medical settings um, are not a, not a qualified situation or something like that, um, I would just press you to really think through that example in, in the uh, Old Testament. Yeah, le leprosy is not like does not discriminate against bathing suit areas. Right, That's exactly. That's how it goes. Also, one other thing, because sometimes it comes up, well, we're, we're comparing that there, there's violence and there's nudity in the Bible. And this to me strikes me as like a totally faulty argument. You cannot compare modern media right. to biblical representation of those two things. And the reason is this is an error of intent and content. Again, you can't say like the perfect righteousness of God and his intent in including those things in the scriptures anywhere compares to any TV show that you would watch right, right now. They're just not comparable. So it's just helpful to kind of think through this. And to ask, really to ask, and I'm, I'm talking to myself, I guess I'm preaching first to the choir, and that is, why is it that we so badly want to cling to these things? Why is it that we're right. looking for an excuse to participate? And I think probably that's the better, but the harder question. So I, I yeah. try to ask myself that with lots of different kinds of, of media is, why is it I so badly bristle if somebody says, or even questions just innocently, so why is it that you participate in that? Or what kind of value does that bring to your life? Yeah, exactly. So I think that probably... Um, 
settles at least carries part of the question. If you've got more questions, folks, we'd love to hear Bring them. them and as you can see, we are happy to address things on the show. Um, whether it's a question about this or something else, we always leave our phone number at the end of the show. So um, we'll drop that towards the end of the show if you are really interested in calling us or you can email us. All our contact info will be dropped at the end of the show. So Tony, this week, what are you affirming or denying? Well, I'm not affirming anything specific. Um, there's been all sorts of great things. I am affirming going to church on Sunday. I had a blast this morning at church. Just a really, really great sermon. We read through um, parts of Psalm 119 and just how meditating on the law of the Lord is a blessing and is sweet and is something that really benefits the Christian. But I do have a denial this week. Hit me. Have you heard of the Nashville statement? I have heard of the Nashville statement. The Nashville statement. Can you give me like like a five second... Uh, Reform Brotherhood summary of what the Nashville statement is. <laughs> Not really, actually, because I've avoided all of this okay. craziness because I think I'm going to confirm your denial, but that's why I want to hear why you're denying it. Yeah. So the Nashville statement for people who are like Jesse and have either intentionally avoided it or yes. live under some sort of rock or don't have access to the internet. Um, the actual provenance or the origin of this is a little bit shroudy. Uh, at this point, I'm not entirely sure who uh, was on the drafting committee. But a group from uh, Christians for uh, Manhood, uh, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which is known from eternal functional subordination fame, uh, and the Ethics in Religious Liberty Commission, which is a a sort of a branch of the Southern Baptist Convention, they published a statement that was a series of 14 affirmations and denials, which is ironic because this is the format of creedal statements that we took our affirmation this segment from boom and this was a statement on human sexuality and so my objection is not at all to the content i think that the statement from a theological standpoint with a few questions where it's not really clear what they mean um is rock solid it's good stuff um with the weren't for my coming objection i would be happy to sign such a statement the reason i'm denying this is twofold first Every single thing that they said in this um, statement is said, maybe not as explicitly or as directedly, but is said in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So they're not saying anything new. They're not affirming anything that the church has historically denied. They're not doing anything of the nature. Um, Where I have a problem with this document is that people invariably start to treat something like this as though it was an authoritative church creed. And when I, when this first came out, there's an article I'll link to, I wrote over on my blog, reformedarsenal.com that kind of outlined some of this. But when it first came out, I brought this up with a couple people and they're like, you're crazy. Everybody will recognize that this isn't any sort of authoritative statement. This is just a bunch of evangelicals who are publishing something. They're publishing their opinion to state that they believe this is what human sexuality is about. Within the last two days, right? Two days, uh, it was published on the 31st. So since was that Thursday? I don't know, last couple days. I've had someone say that this was an ecumenical council. They have used this as a measure of orthodoxy. I have been called a coward for not signing it. I was told that I um, I was like the Israelites bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol and that the people who signed this were like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up for the truth. That seems like a good so, comparison. Yeah, this is already being treated like an ecumenical creed, an ecumenical council. And so this is not, we're going to talk about ecclesiology tonight. We're going to talk about the different ways that different church bodies um, sort of root authority and understand authority. 
But this is not how it works, right? Not in an independent Baptist model, which Jesse's going to explain. Not in a Presbyterian model, which I'm going to explain. Not in an Episcopalian model, which um, I'll talk about briefly. This just isn't how church um, church documents are created. And so in, rea- in point of fact, this document is no more ecclesiastically authoritative than this podcast or my blog. Which is to say, it's not at all. Right. So this isn't a this isn't an authoritative statement. This isn't a church document. This was created by men who men who are um, in authority in the church, but not acting as officers in the church. So um, it, it just it it really just kind of supplants the actual authoritative documents that we have, and it starts to replace them. And I think that's a really dangerous precedent. And I would actually submit to the people who are listening that if it was not for the fact that the parachurch organizations in North America particularly were so prominent throughout the history of religious development in North America, this probably wouldn't have happened. And if it had, we would all recognize it for exactly what it is. Exactly. But the fact that we've made such a big deal out of organizations like uh, the Gospel Coalition or even things like the Alliance of uh, Confessing Evangelicals, which is a great organization, or Ligonier or um, Modern Reformation, these different parachurch groups that publish things and make statements, um, they're really prominent. And so we see this as something that is an extension of that authority without recognizing that that isn't an authority in the first place. So that's what I'm denying tonight is the Nashville statement specifically, but this sort of extra ecclesiastical creedal definition thing that the church really seems to like to do lately. I shouldn't say the church, the people who constitute the church really like to do lately. Get that weak stuff out of here. Get it out of here. Yeah. That's why I've tried to avoid it. Honestly, I read through it and I was kind of like, yeah, this is as authoritative as like my Dunkin Donuts receipt. So I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's interesting, but it's not I mean, the fir- what it claims to be. The first thing I saw was that Wayne Grudem was one of the like top signatories, and it's published by CBMW. Right. And my head immediately, I started clicking through looking for EFS stuff. <laughs> and I didn't see any on my first pass, but Amy Bird actually posted an article that pointed out a few things that- Might be implied. Might be implied. At the very least, we know that the EFS advocates- are signing on to the saying, yes, this represents my view of right. human sexuality and, and gender and all of that. And as we've said, that probably means there's some problems in the right. first place. It's all connected. Um, exactly. Um, so I'll, I'll link to Amy's article in the in the show notes as well. It was a really good article. Yeah, good stuff. So real, so, real quick, here's what I'm affirming and denying this week. Yes. Real fast. You ready for this? All right. First, in terms of affirmations, I'm affirming telling people that you're praying for them. I've had just some crazy things going on. I had a bunch of people praying or at least saying they were praying for me. And then they texted and emailed me this week. It made a crazy difference in my life. So uh, first pray for somebody. And then second, like don't underestimate what it means to somebody to let them know that you're actually following through with what you said. It's Mm -hmm. huge. I don't know if that's ever happened to you before, but it's amazing. It has. Yeah. It makes a big difference. Yeah. It's crazy almost. I can't, I can't explain it. Uh, here's what I'm denying this week. I'm denying stray cats, not because <laughs> not because uh, I necessarily have a thing against cats, although I do feel like they most often look at me and they give me this expression that says they can read into my soul. But just recently, uh, there's a stray cat that kind of just chills around our neighborhood. And I was helping my wife put bring groceries into our home and the car was parked like maybe uh, 30 feet away from the front door. I go to, I left the front door open because it was nice out. I'm carrying groceries back and forth in. Uh, that's a normal thing, right? People do that. Leave the front door open for a second. 
I yeah. turn around with some groceries in hand and I see this stray cat walking by. It looks at me and then just walks right into my house and starts <laughs> walking right up the stairs. And I'm thinking, I don't know anything about cats. So I'm thinking this thing is going to like nest in a bed or something. I'm not going to be able to get it out. So I just ran. <laughs> I just ran into the house yelling. My wife is like, what is going on? I'm saying something ridiculous about a cat coming in. And uh, yeah, I got halfway up the stairs. And then luckily it saw me and just shot back out. But I'm not about stray cats just walking all up into my house. That is really funny. Yeah, I deny that all day long and twice on the Sabbath. <laughs> all day. That That's really funny. I would love to have been there to see that. Oh my God. It really freaked me out because I just felt like this cat was really forward. Do cats do this? I don't know. Cat people yeah. are going to give us all kinds of, of hate. We'll probably get more hate mail about yeah. from cat people than we bought the Game of Thrones thing. Yeah. Cats do whatever they want. That's... That's what a cat is. Yeah. They do whatever they're, they want. They're basically the honey badgers of pets. I mean, it's just yeah. crazy. So, yeah, I'm denying the stray cat thing. I'm sure people have many stray cats. They're sweet. They feed them. They pet them, whatever. But uh, I just was not about this cat making its way into my home. Yeah, I think the ancient Egyptians probably worshipped cats because they were like, we don't know who else do. but a god would act like this. <laughs> it has to be a deity if it just acts like it owns the place and it's only like four and a half that's, pounds. Actually, that's a good point. I feel like you just closed yeah. the loop for me on that. Yeah. Because it's a weird so, thing to worship cats, but I can understand if you think like, listen, this thing thinks it's in control. It seems to be yeah. sovereign, or at least it thinks it oh, is. Oh, yeah. It does. It definitely thinks it does. So, yeah, I can see that. Well, this that's a great transition into ecclesiology. Yes, so we are on our, I believe, our second to last formal systematic theology section. We're getting there. We're getting there. So tonight we're talking about the doctrine of the church. And there are no end of things that you could talk about when you're talking about the doctrine of the church. And we've already talked a fair amount about ecclesiology on the show already. So our very first episode was kind of like an ecclesiology episode. So go back and listen to that. We did an episode on church membership, right? Which was, um, we kind of came to the conclusion that even uh, as early as the New Testament, we see church membership kind of in all its glory present in the pages of the New Testament. For sure. And tonight we are going to talk about something that a lot of people don't even think about when they go to church, but it actually kind of weaves its way in and out of a lot of different things that are going on at your church that I think is pretty important to see. And that is how the church is governed or ruled. And the, the technical term for this might be like church polity. Yeah. So if you ever hear about church polity, that's what they're talking about. And it's related to that word um, polis, this sort of the politic, and, and it's related to like city and governance. So church polity is kind of how you arrange your church, what different offices there are, and how those offices interact and kind of govern and rule the church. I love it. Does that sound like a good definition? Of course it does. I was waiting for you to drop that P word. Get some polity up polity. in here on this podcast. Yeah. So let's let's get after it. Let's start talking about kind of the different ecclesiastical polity. Yes. So there's basically, um, more or less, there are three major historical types of church polity. And then there's one that's a relatively recent innovation that we're not going to spend any time on except to describe and give one tiny little point of critique. So the, the, the one that probably is most... Um, manifestly apparent to people is what's called an Episcopal or an Episcopalian model. And so an Episcopalian model comes from the Greek word episkopos, which is where we get our word bishop. And so it's a model that's ruled by bishops. And so the the way that that works is it's a hierarchical model where you have, um, it's kind of the very base of the church is the, is the laity. So the, the people who go to church, but are not, um, 
not sort of like professional Christians. And then you uh, have the next level is like the priests or maybe some deacons, the people who are kind of doing the day in, day out work of the church. So particularly priests and deacons. And then you go up and you typically have bishops. Um, Now, when you get into like Anglicanism, which is a Protestant tradition that has um, an Episcopal model, um, you have the bishops are kind of the top level and they sort of work as a a college or a committee um, that is governing and ruling the church, but it's still hierarchical. And then in Anglicanism, you have sort of the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is formally the um, formally the highest clerical position in the uh, Church of England. Um, the King of England or Queen of England, depending on who is uh, in you know enthroned at the moment, is formally the head of the Church of England. So they have a modified um, Episcopal model. You also see the Roman Catholic Church has an Episcopal, mo- Episcopal model. They have a few more levels above bishops. They have cardinals, and then they have the Pope, obviously. And Eastern Orthodoxy also uses kind of a modified Episcopal model where they have patriarchs that are sort of regional popes or regional archbishops. Um, So those are the main um, uh, Episcopal or bishop-driven ones. And it appears as though for the majority of the church, once we get past maybe 150 or 200, this is the dominant Uh, church polity in the history of the church until we get to uh, really the Reformation. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I think I'm hoping that you'll see tonight that we obviously don't think it's a biblical model because if we thought it was the biblical model, then that's what we would be doing. Exactly. But um, it would be disingenuous not to acknowledge that that's the dominant model throughout church history. It's one of the few areas in church history that I will look at it and say, yeah, the church just got that wrong for the most, most of history. Right. It's just a fact. Um, other areas, I'm not quite as um, ambitious to do that. Um, even in some areas that might surprise you, I'm still wanting to say the church probably, you know, the church had something right and maybe it was a little off. Or um, a lot of times we think that the church had something wrong for hundreds and hundreds of years. And when we look back, there was this common thread within the church that was correct. And then there was also this common thread that was incorrect and they were in competition. But that's not the case with um, with the Episcopal model is it just was the dominant model. Right. This is the model that's kind of more in your face in the sense that it's plainly obvious that right. there's like a hierarchy of authority that's been granted, especially in Rome. That, that makes sense. Right. Even a casual person will understand that because they know something about the Pope having a different sense of authority and that not every person is empowered in the same way. So you're right. right. This is the one probably people are most familiar with, but not intimately just that like it exists. And for Protestants in particular, this one can kind of seem sometimes a little bit weird if you're not Episcopalian because you're kind of like, I don't get, I don't get the Pope thing. I don't get the ex-cathedral, like all that stuff. But this one's, one's pretty obvious. Yeah. So the other model that I want to talk about briefly um, and and give a couple quick points of critique is sometimes called the Moses model of leadership. And the Moses model is drawing from the example of Moses in the Old Testament, right? Moses is kind of the supreme judge of Israel. And he goes to his father-in-law, Jethro, and says, more or less, I just can't do this. There's too much for me to do, and it's going to kill me. And Jethro says, of course it's going to kill you. Why don't you appoint some people who are beneath you, who are kind of subordinate to you, and they'll share the load. But you have the ultimate authority. The difference between this and kind of an Episcopal model is that it's it's a local Moses model. So the most famous recent example of this um, is the late Mars Hill Church with, with Mark Driscoll. Right. So Mark Driscoll was the chief elder of this church. 
He was the highest level authority. He would say that he, um, the only person who kind of outranked him in the church was Jesus. And so he didn't, he wasn't accountable to anybody except Jesus. He wasn't accountable to the other elders. He wasn't accountable to the congregation. He wasn't accountable to other churches. He was accountable to Jesus only. And the reason, the primary point of critique of this is that it really lends itself to abuse. And that's what we saw with Mark Hill is that Mark Driscoll answered to nobody and he did whatever he wanted. And it wasn't until there was a big controversy and they actually shifted their model a little bit and built in an accountability board that he was accountable to. And it was only a few years later that that accountability board essentially said, we're putting you on suspension because you've been abusive to people. And then he resigned from the church. So this model is really common in sort of um, large independent churches, smaller independent Baptist churches sometimes have something similar going on, but because of their size, the, the single pastor usually can handle the church. But when you get into these larger mega churches, the sort of single pastor model usually wants to be retained, but they can't do it because it just gets too big for one person right. to manage. And so it kind of morphs into this Moses model and that can be really detrimental. Yeah. It particularly lends toward a congregation with a leader with a lot of gravitas, of course. And sometimes right. in the smaller churches, this model kind of comes in by, by necessary nature because you have somebody, it's small enough that somebody's taking on all those roles, essentially. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best way to go about it, but I have seen that be the case because it kind of becomes the most practical model, especially in a small church that perhaps is growing. But the problem, like you said, is, I mean, anybody can just look at Mars Hill and say, well, clearly if there was a, a cult of personality there, it was not good that all of the power was essentially centralized right. and the authority was just pinpointed on a single person that does, like anybody should say from an accountability standpoint, that is not, is, is some point that's going to come home to roost and that's going to be a serious problem. And of course, in this case, unfortunately it did. Yeah. So um, why don't we, why don't we have you start out, um, maybe take uh 10, 15 minutes or so, if you want. You can take less if you'd like. Um, and just kind of describe... Is like a debate the, We're getting timed? No. <laughs> Why don't we stick to 10 <laughs> minutes because we have we have kind of an exercise towards the end we want to save time for. Okay. So if you want to take 10 minutes and describe um, the sort of independent local congregational model, um, which is the model you grow up in, sure. right? It's the model that actually I'm currently in as a member of the church I'm in. So this is another one of those situations where we are not not necessarily within the models of what we affirm, um, but that's okay. So if you want to go ahead and, and take a little bit and we'll go through that and then I'll do my side of it on the other end. Congregationalism in the house. Everywhere. Yeah. And what, let me say up front too, that what's strange about this is like, we, we, I think we probably come from, we definitely come from different backgrounds on this and m- might have different convictions of this. For me, church polity is always one of those things that it's really helpful to understand and yet still, I don't have as strong convictions on it, to be honest with you, as some other things. So it's, it's something that I think is really, every Christian should be aware of how the church operates and how they're designating authority. That is super important. But even the church I attend now is actually a mix of two of these, to be honest. So yeah. the, the one that I'm most familiar with by way of my background is this congregational or independent model, which is just a system of governance in which every local church congregation is independent or ecclesiastically sovereign or autonomous. So this is the one that's kind of like most easily identifiable with like Americans because it's kind of got this decentralized democratic style and feel to it. And I think if you talk to many people, even like reform people, if they attend a church that has this kind of church governance, 
they almost don't even realize it's there because it just feels like this is how it's supposed to be, right? Like we're supposed to express right. our, our opinion. So this has been around for a long time, of course. Like it, it actually arose in England, like the 16th and 17th centuries. And this independent model occupies a theological position that's somewhere between Presbyterianism, which you're going to talk about, and somewhere like on the other spectrum will be like Quakers, like kind of some weird stuff. But the bottom line is it's emphasizing the right and responsibility of each properly organized congregation to determine its own affairs without having to submit its judgment to any other higher human authority. So that means it's already eliminating the bishops, which you already spoke about. And it's also going to eliminate presbyteries, which you are yet to speak about. Uh, so it kind of book, bookends both of those things. And it's distinguished clearly from the Episcopalian polity, which you talked about, because that has this hierarchy of bishops. But it's also going to be distinct from the Presbyterian polity because there's no higher assembly of congregational representatives, which can exercise like considerable authority over the individuals in the congregation. So I'm guessing that's something you're going to cover when you get to the presby action, right? Yep. By the way, one of the best books I've ever seen titled is called Presbytopia, which is all about yes. Presbyterianism. Such I real I want yes. to become Presbyterian just so I can embrace that title. But it's a great title. It's a fantastic title. So in this independent congregational model, the emphasis on the rights of the particular congregation and on the freedom of the conscience arises really from this strong conviction concerning the sovereignty of God and the priesthood of all believers. So all these models, we should say, are being drawn from Scripture. They're just being drawn from kind of different points of Scripture, kind of an outworking of what people feel convicted about is the best way to designate authority. So the foundational claim, at least as I understand it for the Congregationalist, is that the entire church body has the final authority under God's word in matters of doctrine, which would include choosing leaders, and discipline, which would include choosing members. So it's this idea of, of separate uh, but that authority is designated to the congregation. What it doesn't mean, like, let me say up front for people that are thinking, well, this is crazy because we have elders and clearly the Bible has mandated and given elders authority. Like that is low hanging fruit. So you know, obviously if we go to Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying, these elders are empowered. They give, have authority to be overseers. So that's clear. So the difference is that the mantle of day-to-day -day leadership in a kind of congregationalist model all that oversight is falling to the elders. You know, the congregation should seek out elders' leadership when it comes to new members and new leaders. It's not authority to lead per se. It's the authority to veto bad leadership. So if the elders are compromising the gospel and the congregation should have the authority to step forward and say, we're going to veto that compromise. You know, in the same way, if, if a member's life becomes compromised, and in a sense, like metaphorically speaking, the congregation should get to veto that person's profession of faith through excommunication. So that, that also means the congregation is going to have the authority to choose leaders and affirm its members. So this is just a method by which basically it's decentralized. And there's, there's you know, biblical grounds, of course, to stand on that particular structure. But it's this idea of separate, independent, and the fact that, you know, in matters of doctrine and in discipline, that the congregation is empowered with authority to make those decisions, designating that in some way in the day-to-day -day life to the elders whom the scripture has clearly defined as overseers. So that's my, am I within 10 minutes? That's my, uh, yeah. my basic lesson in congregationalism for all those who are like, what is this congregationalism you speak of? Yeah. So, um, I think that's a great summary. Just the only thing that I would, the only thing that I would add or clarify, um, would be 
It's important to remember that this doesn't mean in most cases that everything comes down to like a raw majority congregational vote. Right. It's not democratic um, in that strict sense. There are, there are some congregationalist models that are, um, and those, those tend to be wrong, very difficult to get anything done <laughs> because you have to get, but they also tend to be some of the most contentious because right, everything exactly. becomes a battle and political and things like that. Not that other models are not susceptible to political, but sometimes I hear people talk about like, um, authority being invested in the congregation to um, to mean like, well, the congregation votes on every single decision. Right. And that just isn't not, it's not the way that it goes. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting and, and is a big distinction that you did, didn't touch on, at least not directly, is because the, the congregation is the final authority in terms of doctrine and electing leaders. It's actually the congregation that ordains ministers. Right. That's true. So the lay person the lay people of the church are the ones ordaining ministers. And that we'll see becomes a major difference between Presbyterian models and independent or congregationalist models. Right. Yeah. Basically the idea is that the congregation is going to have the final say on these things. They may in a way delegate authority in their leadership, but the leaders that they're actually delegating authority to, including the ministers in the ordination process is by their choice. Right. So th- again, this is where you're right. This is the the place where there's a lot of room for debate because if you go to a, a congregationalist or independent church where everything gets decided, and I, I've actually gone to a couple where it's like varying degrees, it's a sliding scale. So like right. in issues of let's say hiring or compensation, that goes to the elders. But on issues like carpet color, that goes to the congregation. And that's probably worse because people will throw down over carpet choice. Right. So it can get will. it can get out of hand. So if you if you really are firmly rooted in this, feel very convicted that everything must pass through the laity, then you're talking about like an insane list of decisions that people have to come yeah. to agreement on sometimes and yeah. buckle up because that can get absolutely wild. Yeah. All right. So hit us with uh, let's get some Presbyterian action going. I hit introduce us to the Presbytopia. The Presbytopia. So Presbyterianism um, is a word that we use to describe a, uh, a model that is based on elders who are overseers of the church. So in the Bible, the term overseer, which is uh, episkopos, which is where we get bishop, and elder and pastor, all of those terms are interchangeable. And so the elders in a local congregation are authorities over that congregation. Uh, depending on the style of Presbyterianism, they're still usually um, sort of chosen by the congregation. But the main feature of Presbyterianism is a sort of a regional collection of ministers that are responsible for the the oversight of the church of the region. So um, the most the most um, familiar to me model is the model that the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uses. It's very similar to other Presbyterian models. And what you have is you have a regional church called a presbytery. Um, the the continental tradition functions, from what I can tell, basically the same. But they call I believe they call that a classis. It's just a different um, a different term. It has to do with the different languages. And so this presbytery is a collection of ordained ministers who are teaching elders. So they have been um, usually they're seminary trained. And the main difference that I see is that. Elders are ordained by the presbytery. The teaching elders of the church are ordained by the presbytery. So other ordained ministers are who ordain ministers. And so what they're saying is that the people that God has put into these positions, 
and trained are responsible for assessing whether or not another person is competent to fill that role as well. However, once that person is ordained or licensed to the presbytery, they have equal authority with every other presbyter in the presbytery. In addition to these teaching elders, local local congregations will also have what are called ruling elders. And what a ruling elder is, is a man uh, who is nominated from or selected from that local congregation and then is ordained by the teaching elder of that congregation. And those men then become equal in say with the teaching elder over that church, but they also then become members of the regional church, the presbytery. And so it's not quite the same as a hierarchical model because there's no top and bottom, right? There's not the the laity and they don't do anything. And then there's the clergy and they rule the church. What there is, is there's people who are appointed and ordained in order to um, shepherd and guide the church. The idea of shepherding is very strong in these. And people, um, elders in Presbyterian churches across the board, everyone I've talked to, see their responsibility as a caretaking responsibility. Whereas some Episcopal models, it tends more towards a sort of rulership, leadership, um, almost like a kingship over that congregation. And so the Presbyterian model functions basically by saying we have this regional collection of ministers who are ordained by this regional church, and they're not members of the local congregation. Their membership lies in the regional church. And then this regional church makes decisions on a broad scale that will affect the doctrinal positions and the policies of all of those congregations. However, it's not the case that they would exercise oversight in things like building projects or oversight in things like um, the color of the carpet or the format of the uh, bulletin or things like that. Now, it's interesting because at the the um, National Assembly, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of America, there was a presbyter or an elder who was disciplined because his church had an image of Christ on the front of their worship bulletin. So the presbytery, the presbytery wouldn't discipline that church directly in most cases. What they would do is they would say, as a minister, as an ordained minister, you have these obligations to the regional church. And so part of that obligation is shepherding these this congregation in biblical fidelity. So it's really interesting the way it works, but the, the main point is this regional group of men who are responsible for the churches in that region. And one of the strong points from my perspective is sort of the interrelatedness of those um, those churches. So for example, um, I was visiting an, an OPC church for their evening service, I don't know, a couple weeks back, and they had just sort of another minister from another part of the presbytery who was in the area and stopped by. And it was very much, uh, you could very much sense that it was just, this is all one big church and we're all a part of it. And so it was just as natural for him to come to this church as it would be for him to settle in for the evening service at his home. There's also a really strong sense of camaraderie and mutual assistance in terms of finances, in terms of um, resources. So it's very common for one church in a presbytery to send a group of their men and women to help with a cleanup project or to uh, help with a building project or something like that. It's very different. Um, it's a very different feel than sometimes the independent churches have with that sort of mutual responsibility. And then in addition to all of that, there's also a, uh, a concept of sort of a pool of people to preach from for pulpit supply. So one of the struggles with a small independent church is when the pastor's gone, what happens? 
Well, maybe you call someone from outside the church. Maybe you don't have church. Maybe one of the people in the church preaches. Um, you might hire a guest speaker. I know some churches where the pastor will record their sermon and then you play it on the speakers. There's no like set established way to handle that. In a Presbyterian model, what would happen is at any given time, the Presbytery has several teaching elders and um, they might just send someone from another congregation to come teach your congregation that week. Um, the other aspect of this is that Presbyterian models in terms of um, the way they administer the sacraments is restricted to the elders. So some denominations would say that you can do communion anytime you want. You don't have to be an elder. You just have to have a group of believers. Um, that's not a Baptist Presbyterian thing. There are lots of Baptist churches that would affirm that it's elder, elder led sacraments. Only elders can baptize. There's very specific prescribed ways of doing things. But in Presbyterian models, that's a very firm thing across the board is that the sacraments need to be attached to an, a sort of an official proclamation of God's word. And that official preaching function is something that only the teaching elders can fulfill. So if you don't have a teaching elder to preach, you don't have a, an, a sort of a sanctioned uh, preaching of the gospel, then you don't have sacraments. So you may do something that looks like a sacrament, but it's not a sacrament. And that's a major feature of Presbyterian models as well. How's that? Right on. No, I thought there was more. That was great. <laughs> I, I, I love that. So let's uh, transition to kind of into speaking about why people have come to these particular models, because presumably they don't do so in an arbitrary manner and that they, they come with scripture. And I think if somebody's listening and saying, well, why, why even spend the time talking about this kind of thing? Because we just rattled off a bunch of distinctives that more or less seem very academic. They seem kind of very sterile, right. but right. Um, you know, to me, and I want you to answer this as well. Like to me, why this is important is we need to understand who in our local congregations, who is God explicitly authorized with final authority on two matters. One is what we've been talking about doctrine. So that's adjudicating faithful proclamation of the apostolic gospel. And the second is right. discipline, which is adjudicating faithful living in light of the apostolic gospel. So to claim that someone has authority, you've got to demonstrate that they have been authorized and, and no authority on earth is intrinsic unless you're God. So authority right. must be authorized. A person or a group must be given license to lead. So I think that's why everybody should take a little stock, do a little inventory and figure out what, what kind of models your church operating on. And uh, do you subscribe to that? I mean, you should kind of process that, metabolize it. So right. as you understand it, when you're looking at the Presbyterian model, where does the scripture kind of come in? Where's the point of entry for, for how that developed and why? Sure. So what I wanted to do is I wanted us to take a look at um, the account of the first council of the church in Acts 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. So I'm going to read the whole um, section here. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's really important for us to kind of get through the whole thing. So starting in verse one, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth of the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he, and he made no distinctions between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon had related how, or Simeon had related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will rebuild and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruin and I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Before, or therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. From the ancient generation, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. And then Acts goes on to um, detail a letter that had been sent by the apostles to all of the churches um, explaining the results of this council. And so I think we, we read this section and we rightly understand that this, this section here is teaching us about um, this, the Gentiles and salvation. It's the historical record of an early controversy in the church. But what I think we sometimes gloss over is that this is the first example of the church universal, um, as universal as it was at the time, the church universal gathering to resolve a controversy. And when I look at this, what I see is the leaders, the delegated leaders of local congregations coming together into a regional meeting, discussing an issue, and then coming to a solution, and then they communicate that back out to the churches. Right. And what I see in there is kind of the General Assembly of Jerusalem or the Presbytery Meeting of Jerusalem, right? We have the apostles and the elders. And so the church, the churches in the region sent elders to this, uh, this meeting to represent them, but also um, these were people who had the authority to be at that meeting. And if we look elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that Paul gives Timothy instructions for appointing elders. Paul says that he appointed elders in every town that he went through. And so the, the sense is that each town, each church, each local gathering of believers had a, an elder who was ordained by an apostle or ordained by someone who was ordained by an apostle. And so there's this kind of succession of ordination that isn't an unbroken succession, right? We're not Roman Catholic, but there's a succession of ordination where people who are ordained to leadership are ordained by other people who have already been ordained to leadership. And just one other quick thought is when we look at Galatia, when you read the opening of the, the letter to the Galatians, it says to the churches in Galatia. So this was a letter not to each individual congregation, but if we're reading this and understanding this through a Presbyterian lens, this was a letter to the kind of the Presbytery of Galatia. And that Presbytery is made up of all of the leaders of Galatia, and he's correcting their doctrine and then expecting them to go out and teach, the, teach that doctrine to their churches. So that's kind of the Presbyterian approach when they read in Scripture where we see a precedent for that model. 
Um, what do you, I mean, what do you think about this passage from your perspective? Well, first of all, it's a great passage. And I, this is, this is where for me, like, I think we'd both say that, uh, obviously ecclesiastical polity is not salvific. So there's wonderful differences of opinion here and, and churches where are, can agree to disagree on, on how business matters get pushed forward and then how authority is designated. But I mean, I see a lot of strength in what you're saying there. I mean, I, I think that that's, you're just pulling that right from the scriptures. There's actually not a lot of interpretation there. It, you don't have to make right. any kind of necessary inferences there. It's just this seemed to be how they did it. And so even with whether it's any three of those, I suppose we get into the discussion of whether it's prescriptive or descriptive. But the bottom line is that's right. what went on. So there's good grounds to say this seemed to work then. And they had to make a major decision about this. And authority was vested. And it seems clear about that chain. So we're going to, like, why do anything different? Yeah, absolutely. Um, why don't you take a few minutes and just kind of talk about where you see the independent or the congregationist model in Scripture? Yeah, well, I want to be like, let me just be super brief. I'll give like one point of entry that I often see. And that is, again, we talked about doctrine and discipline. And this has to do more with discipline. So in terms of where the kind of congregational model sets its feet in this area, it's probably more hinged in Matthew 16 and 18. And that's where essentially we're trying to understand who has the keys for the kingdom for binding and loosing. So the idea in my mind is whoever possesses the keys of the kingdom has the ultimate authority, of course, under God's word, in Christ's kingdom on earth. So if you think for a moment about the state's power of the sword, if we define that really narrowly, what we're saying is the power of the sword points to the state's uh, you know, authority to end a life. But by imp- implication, we're also kind of saying, well, this means the state has the enforcement mechanism necessary for establishing even basic structures of society, especially who is a citizen. So it's kind of following along the same lines for the congregationalists. So Matthew 18 teaches that basically the whole congregation has the keys, not just the elders. And that fits in well with this idea that there's a priesthood of believers. So that idea of the priesthood is not just paying lip service to a concept or an idea, but it's basically saying the role of the priest now gets decentralized, democratized in a sense. So Matthew 18, 17, this is where it kind of comes to a head, at least in terms of discipline and, under, and understanding who has the authority of that discipline. So Matthew 18, 17 reads, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the question that we have to answer is, who is the you in verse 17 that should treat individuals as outsiders to the covenant community? Is it the elders or is it the whole church? And so we probably right. would mostly say, well, that that applies to the whole church. So this is just like one place where we see this is where the, the kind of independent view is drawing from the scriptures to kind of say, well, that authority rests with the entire congregation. So that's just one example because we could go for both of us. We could go on and on about right. the difference in example. But that's just one place where we kind of see it uh, borne out. Is that something like is that a passage that you kind of also run across in various other forms yeah. of quality? Yeah, I mean, th- this is another like like you said, this is another one of those where every every group looks at this and they see their own model. Right, exactly. So when I look at this, I see the two or three that you're going to or the two or three that you bring are two or three witnesses, and then when you go to the church, the church is um is the whole church, but it, the the authority is still being executed by the elders, and that's why it says if any two or three of you agree, 
I am there in the midst of you is because it's it's reinforcing the authority that the two or three elders of the church have that the son then confirms with his presence. So I think that's kind of, you know, like we found in the baptism episode is so much of this comes, it's kind of, a, sometimes unfortunately it can be like a chicken or the egg right. model. Yeah, for sure. And I think that this is a doctrine we have to lose, hold loosely. Yes. Because although I'm, I'm convinced that the Presbyterian model is what we see in scripture and I'm how convinced that you, in Tony. an ideal world, that's how we would structure the church. And you're convinced of the same regarding the you know congregational model. Um, I think I want to give like a practical example of how this plays out. And the area of discipline is is really clear because it's really explicit. Right. So in a in a Presbyterian model, if I have an issue with another member of the church, um, I can bring them up on formal charges, and they will actually the the session, which is just the collection of presbyters at a local church, will actually go through like a disciplinary procedure. And if the person who's being disciplined doesn't agree with that they can actually appeal to the presbytery if they still don't agree with they can appeal to the national gathering of the church called a general assembly and so it still is that um that regional church that executes the discipline and so the basically more or less if the the presbyters decide yes this is a legitimate case it's the presbyters who excommunicate you the congregation generally speaking doesn't vote right in cases of discipline in presbyterian models the pres uh, the, the congregation would be informed um, usually from the pulpit, they would be informed or at a you know a business meeting or something of that nature. In a congregational model, and sadly I've, I've experienced this in, in other churches and stuff, is what happens is once it gets to that point in the discipline, the whole church is gathered and the whole church votes on what to do with this person. Right. Yep. And there's something there's something visceral about that. Um, having been in a meeting like that, to have to have to raise your hand and vote to say yes, this person needs to be removed from our church roles and understanding that when we remove them from our church roles, in many ways, we are sort of mimicking or we're shadowing what we believe to be the, the heavenly reality that they have been blotted out from the, the book of life. Right. That's what removing someone from the church roles with excommunication is patterned after in both Presbyterian and generally Baptist models too. So I think both of those have strengths and weaknesses, right? When the elders, the three elders, um, make a decision, they make the decision. It's just those three men that are making that decision or however many men it is. There's, you know, it varies depending on the size of the congregation. On the flip side, this can be really divisive in a local congregation. If half the congregation really likes this person, half the congregation is neutral, but sees the discipline issue, that's where church splits happen. So it's important to understand how these models work because they, they drive things that are going on in your local congregation that you may not understand. And so it's important to understand these things and the theological underpinnings underneath them, because a lot of times we join a church without without even thinking about the polity that the church has. Most most people, I think, probably don't. They they look for particular things they're familiar with, theology of baptism. Do I have a children's ministry? What's the preaching like? But the idea of how is the church actually governed, that is a lot bigger of a deal than I think most people realize. Yeah, for sure, especially with discipline, because nobody would argue that discipline is a hard thing and how it gets fleshed out is important. It would be unfortunate if you got in a situation where you caught off guard because you, you were either involved or not involved in, in some kind of serious discipline. So you're right. It, it just goes back to like who has the power to, to loosen right. or to bind. So in your example, that's a really good one. I've also been a part of meetings where uh, you're being asked to vote because the congregationist model on discipline. And that just goes back to the fact that that model is going to place a premium, so to speak, on the fact that all people should be involved in that and their behavior should reflect that. So it's a very serious thing. 
And so just as, like you said, it can cause divisiveness in the same way, like you said, a weakness of the Presbyterian model is, is I've also known people who have been part of those congregations where when discipline comes down, they can feel disenfranchised with the leadership because they don't right. understand why they made that decision or they feel strongly the other way. So in every model, you're going to get people that disagree about how the discipline is kind of meted out. But we have to trust in our leadership in some ways. And we, we should be primarily concerned that we're seeing biblical leadership, strong fidelity to the scriptures, graciousness, um, leaders that are beyond reproach in every model. That should be what's paramount. But you're right. This is like a place where it's great to get together with your brothers and sisters, talk through it and understand that the reason why we have so many different models, at least, is because the Bible isn't super explicit. I mean, it would just be easier if they said, here's your bylaws. Like, right. Exactly. Yeah. Like in somewhere of Acts, they're like, here's a sample bylaws. Fill in your place, your church name in the <laughs> put your church place name here. Like that would just be easier. So this is a wonderful place where God gives us a little bit of diversity to kind of sharpen each other as we flesh out. How is it best yeah. to, to live and to uh, express our faith and to grow in, in the love of Lord Jesus Christ? Yep. So Jesse, why don't you hit us with the ways that people can get in touch with us? All right. So here's some ways that you can hang out with us, at least in a manner of speaking. First, just email us. We know you got email. It's probably Gmail. Maybe some of you have Juno still. Get rid of that stuff. And then email us at <laughs> reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter. Where there's lots of good stuff that we're posting on Twitter under Reformed Brohood. And then last but not least, if you've got issues about anything that we've talked about, please call us and leave a voicemail. Uh, if you're a cat person, which by the way, quick update, I just saw the stray cat twice during the course of this conversation. I had to hold my tongue. The thing knows oh, I'm talking about it. He thinks it's he thinks he owns your apartment now. This is I can somebody call us 607-444-2767. Bros. And let me know if cats can like claim a place by like peeing on it or something. I don't know if that's true, but I think it may have <laughs> happened here. So I'm, I'm it a, probably did. I'm a little bit uh I'm a little bit scared. Yeah, you're gonna have to move now. Yeah, I feel like that's how it is. Somebody send help. All right. Well, do you have any closing thoughts as the elder brother of the conversation before we head out for the night? Um, I appreciate uh, you deferring to me, but basically I'm going to head out and see where that cat is right now because I can't see it now. <laughs> you should bring that cat up on discipline charges. <laughs> Your congregation should totally vote. Um, I kind of wish I was in the presbytery now because I kind of like the formal charge idea. Yeah, there you go. Church courts, man. You got to love that it. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I feel like this was the, the definitive conversation on ecclesiology, like the, the conversation to end all other conversations. I am 100% certain <laughs> that it is not going to do that. So, all right. Well, that has, it has been a blast. We are very excited to continue this journey in systematic theology, but it is almost at an end. So we will uh, have another episode for you next month on the systematic theology, and then we're going to talk about what to do next. But until next time, honor everyone, love the brotherhood.